Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast, Walking with Dante. And in this episode of the podcast, in which we walk in each episode, passage by passage, right on through Dante's masterwork, comedy, we have come to the end of Canto 6, lines 94 through 115, the end of the gluttons, the third circle of hell. We are in Inferno, and we are going down. Let me just remind you what's happened. Dante has come down to the third circle. Cerberus, the great three-headed dog, has threatened him. Virgil has thrown muck in its mouth, which seemed to settle down the old dog. Then they've been walking along, putting their feet through the shades that are sunk in rancid ground that is full of rain and snow and hailstones. They pass by one shade. They don't step on him, but they pass by him. He sits up. It's Chaco. Chaco offers all sorts of information. The first Florentine prophecy, a discussion of who's farther down in hell. And then Chaco basically loses his humanity and falls back into the muck. And so now the end of the canto. And Virgil is going to set us off. And my leader to me, he's not going to wake anymore, not until the sound of the angelic trumpets when the baleful power will come. Each will again find his or her miserable tomb, will be reclothed in flesh and form, and will hear that which resounds throughout eternity. So we made our way through the foul mashup of shades and rain with slow steps touching a little on the life to come. So I said, Master, will these torments get bigger after the grand judgment or get smaller or stay as they are? And he to me, go back to your science, which claims that when something gets closer to perfection, it feels more well-being and also more pain. Although these wretched people will never come to true perfection, they will get closer to it than in their present existence. We continued on in the road's bend, speaking of more things that I won't repeat. Then we came to the place where the road descends. There we came upon Plutus, the great enemy. All right, that's the last bit of the passage. It flows right on into the next canto, Canto 7 and the Fourth Circle of Hell, with the introduction of yet another guard figure, Plutus. But let's go back and look at this. This passage doesn't necessarily break into easy parts, so let's just take it line by line and work through it as it happens. Chaco has fallen back into the muck, and Virgil says to Dante, He's not going to wake anymore, not until the sound of the angelic trumpets. If you remember last time I said there may have been an apocalyptic reference to the two witnesses in Chaco's prophecy, and I said it's going to look forward to this passage, that's because we've come to Virgil and Dante talking about the Last Judgment. Chaco is just gone. He's disappeared. He's he, he, he falls back into the muck and is never seen again. There seems to be a thematic here that history forgets those who do not make a difference. They just sink into the muck of time. And so Chaco's gone from the passage gone from our memories, gone from history. We can't identify this figure anymore. 
It's wild, and yet we get this little reference to the last judgment, as if he's lost now, but don't think he's forever lost. And there may be a little bit, a little bit of theology running under this, because Chaco sinks back into the muck amongst the, all the other gluttons and is lost to history. We might have a tendency to believe an annihilationist view of the soul. This is a bigger problem in the Middle Ages. This was the notion amongst some that in the last judgment, the soul is completely annihilated. It's not that you spend eternity being tortured in hell. It's that basically you're burned up like trash. I mean, there's nothing left of you. The soul, it's, it's like you go into a black hole and all information is lost. That's kind of it, that the soul is across the event horizon and all of its information is now lost forever across the horizon. This is much, much fought against, pushed back upon by the church. It's not considered orthodox theology. And we may have Virgil here reminding us that Chaco is not gone forever. He's not going to wake up anymore, at least not until the sound of the angelic trumpets, which we hear as the last judgment. And then Virgil gives this line, when the baleful power will come, when the inimical power will come, when the hostile force will come. Virgil interprets the second coming of Christ, the end of the world, as the baleful power, the hostile force, the inimical power. And there is a supreme irony going on here. Virgil gets the future wrong. Virgil says it in Virgilian language. It's how someone in hell would understand God as the hostile force or the baleful power. But this is now Virgil telling the future, and we just had Chaco telling the future. We just had Chaco telling the Florentine struggle between May 1st, 1300 and the fall of 1302, in which Chaco accurately gave us the future. Here, Virgil is now going to give us the future, the second coming, the grand judgment, the last judgment. And he didn't get it right. The baleful power will come. The hostile force will come. How can Virgil get the future wrong? I take it that there is a supreme irony going on here, that Chaco gets the Florentine future right, and Virgil twists the cosmic future wrong, offering a heretical understanding or a damned understanding of what will happen. He next says, each will again find his or her miserable tomb. This is the bodily resurrection of all souls, will be reclothed in flesh and form, this is important, flesh and form, and will hear that which resounds throughout eternity, that is the last judgment. Remember early on in this canto, we had this notion that the rain falls and it never changes in measure or quality. And I told you that's in a little Aristotelian question of categorization. Here we have it again. We'll be reclothed in flesh and form. We have again Aristotelian, and really St. Thomas Aquinas, categorizations of matter. This is going to play out because ultimately this passage is going to turn on Aristotle. So all along in this canto, we've been pushing toward Aristotelian thought. It's been brought up in small ways until it drops big later in this very passage. This is this, this, this way Dante has of dropping hints in the passage of what's to come, which leads us to the question, question the problem, 
that you must have read the comedy to read the comedy. That is, if when you reread the comedy, you start to see the ways that ideas are set up before they get dropped big. You start to see patterns that you didn't know before. There are many scholars now who read the comedy vertically. I find this fascinating. And we're reading it horizontally, right? We're starting at Canto 1 of Inferno, and we're running on out horizontally to the end. But there are lots of scholars who read straight down the cantos. Canto 6 of Inferno, Canto 6 of Purgatorio, and Canto 6 of Paradiso. Canto 7 of Inferno, Canto 7 of Purgatorio, Canto 7 <laughs> of Paradiso. But that's a larger scholarly question about vertical readings, which I don't want to touch right now. I don't want to touch any of that till we get up to Purgatorio. Nonetheless, they do that because they claim that there are resonances amongst the cantos, amongst the like-numbered cantos, and that those resonances are set up so that you'll see them vertically, and you can only see them once you have already read the poem. Virgil tells the, the future. He tells about the bodily resurrection of even the damned. Everybody finds their miserable tomb. They get their flesh put back on them and their form, and then they hear the judgment. But he gives that bad spin on it. Baleful power, hostile force. The pilgrim and Virgil make their way through the foul mashup of shades of, 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 of souls and rain with slow steps, touching a little on the life to come. This is all future directed. Future directed after Chaco's prophecy. Future directed after Chaco has explained what will happen in Florence, what has already happened for the poet, but what for the pilgrim will happen in Florence in the very near future. But notice too, foul mashup. This is incomplete, confused, mixed. And yet, isn't this great? Isn't the irony here fabulous? Foul mashup of shades and rain. And yet we're about to get a vision of the perfected bodily resurrection. The pilgrim says, Master, Dante wheels around to being the student. Master, will these torments get bigger after the grand judgment, that is, the last judgment, the second coming of Christ? Will they get bigger after the grand judgment or get smaller or stay as they are? Dante here and throughout this canto has been a model student. And it always leads me to ask the question, is he modeling the attitude of a student he would like us to take toward comedy? Is Dante here asking his teachers, <laughs> Chaco, well, hey, you got to take the teacher you get. Chaco and Virgil questions that model the kind of student interaction that Dante would like from readers of his own comedy. It's a grand question, but there's a bigger thing here. And this, I think, is very important. Dante the poet wheels back to theology from civics. I believe the poet's primary interest is in political and social analysis and problems. Yet he's writing a theological poem. And here we have had a long canto about the civic stress and distress of Florence. And we wheel back at the end to a question of the last judgment. I see this... Ugh, as the poet reining himself in. I say, ugh, because I can't prove it. I can only posit it as a theory. But I see the poet, from my eyes, heading toward a civic vision, a social understanding of the world, maybe even a social and civic understanding of sin. And then constantly in these cantos, 
pulling himself back and reining himself in, saying, oh, right, this is a theological poem. And I got to make sure that the ultimate answers are not political, but that they're godly. That's how I see it. And I saw in the last full and in, in Canto 5 in the opposite direction. We got the theologically orthodox definition of lust up front, the carnal sins of the flesh, and then we moved to an increasingly social and strange definition of lust over the course of that Canto. Here I see the opposite move. We went right out toward civics and now we're pulling back toward orthodoxy. So our pilgrim asks the theological question, once you brought up Virgil, since you brought up the Last Judgment, are, are these people going to suffer worse torment, or is it going to be less torment, or just the same? And Virgil says, go back to your science. What he means is Aristotle. But in a funky way, let me get through the passage first and I'll explain the funky way, which claims that when something gets closer to perfection, it feels more well-being, but also more pain. Although these wretched people will never come to true perfection, they will get closer to it than in their present existence. Why? Because they will get bodies. Remember, they're going to find their miserable tombs and be reclothed in flesh and form, as are the redeemed. They're all going to get their bodies back. And this is ultimately where we've been headed with all of that discussion of the materiality of the soul. In Christian theology, we humans, you and me, are incomplete without the body. In fact, this is why the corporeality of the soul troubles Christianity so much, because of its insistence on a physical, bodily resurrection. And because of that, when you're out of your body, when you're standing as a soul outside your body, you are technically incomplete because the final resurrection is going to reunite you with your body. A new body for the redeemed, I guess the same old body right out of the rotting tomb for the damned, but nonetheless, it's going to, it's going to reunite you with your body. There's this gorgeous passage up in Paradiso in which the redeemed express their yearning for their bodies, their desires to be back in their bodies again. And these are the redeemed who are yearning for their bodies. So here we see this, that you're going to get closer to perfection when you're bodied again, whether you're damned or saved. Well, let's go back to that bit. Go back to your science, or Aristotle, as I told you, which claims that when something gets closer to perfection, it feels more well-being and more pain. There's a lot of talk about where this is in Aristotle. Is it in the ethics? Is it in the physics? What does he mean when he says this is who Dante would think of as science is Aristotle? I know you might think of Aristotle as a philosopher, but if you just think about that division that we already saw in the comedy between science and art, that is between what you know and how you form it and how you put it into praxis, science and art, Aristotle is on the science side of that division in, in Dante's medieval thought. But it may not be actually Aristotelian. Francesco Mazzoni, the great Dante scholar, actually found that this is a gloss from St. Thomas Aquinas. It's a gloss on a passage from Aristotle in De Anima, but it's Aquinas' gloss and that line which claims that something gets 
closer to perfection, which is something that gets closer to perfection, it feels more well-being than, and also more pain. It's basically just a quote from Aquinas. It's a quote from Aquinas's gloss on Aristotle. So it's funny, it's a little bit odd, that Virgil's pushing us back to Aristotle, but Dante the poet underneath that is quoting Aquinas on Aristotle. I don't know that that's necessarily a bit of irony or a little bit of <laughs> a, a, a winking from the poet behind it. It's just an interesting problem that Aristotle is coming up in Virgil's mouth, but Aquinas is coming up in the poet's writing. Interesting little problem that's going on there that Mazzoni found. Okay, go back to your science, which claims that something gets closer to perfection, it feels more well-being and also more pain. Although these rich people will never come close to perfection, they will get closer to it than in their present existence. This calls back to an earlier event in the canto, that bit about quality of the rain and the measure of the rain and above about flesh and form. I mean, this is all calling back to this Aristotelian notion. And I would argue that the Aristotelian mean, the notion... Um, in the Aristotelian ethics of finding moderation and the mean has been running under this canto and maybe under the canto of the lustful too. In fact, the notion of finding an Aristotelian mean moderation in the middle, finding the place of balance, this may have been running in the comedy ever since the dark would. It's certainly running under the lustful, and it's running under here the gluttons. Think about Cerberus. Remember I told you his whole body shakes so much he can't control it? And I said, remember that for this passage. Remember it because, again, all of these people, Francesca, Chaco, Minas, uh, Cerberus, they all are out of control or out of balance in certain ways. And this notion of the Aristotelian mean will play out even bigger in Canto 7. It seems like at this point, Dante the poet is holding on to the notion that excess is the root of human ills. Excess passion, excess gluttony, excess food, that taking yourself until you're out of control is the root of human ills. And frankly, this is the modern liberal ideal that education will teach people to moderate their desires, that this notion of an Aristotelian ideal seems to me to be running underneath the cantos about sin so far. But let me just say that this notion will change. When Chaco falls back into the muck, and as I said in the last episode, loses his humanity, we see glimmers, just the vague little hints of a new understanding of evil that is not based on the Aristotelian mean. That's a very nicely orthodox understanding of sin. And it will lead us to the seven deadly sins, that they're all kind of states of being out of control. However, Dante is never going to be satisfied with that. He's going to redefine sin. Wait till you hear how he redefines it when we get up to the Purgatorio. But even before that, here, we're going to eventually lose the seven deadly sins and go to treachery and violence and fraud. We're going to go to 
other sins that are not some of the seven deadly sins that are all found on this Aristotelian mean of excess and finding the place of moderation. Instead, we're going to find a different understanding of human evil. But I got to hold it. See, this is why you have to subscribe to the podcast. I got to hold it till it comes up in future passages. I am constrained by what's in front of me. And what's in front of me are the last four lines of the passage. We continued on in the road's bend. This is the first time that we see you sort of have to walk around the circles of hell in order to go down. It's not that hell's a spiral, but that you you, you go around a little bit of the edge, uh, the corners, the rim, the circle, and then you find a way down. And then you go a little more around some and you find a way down. This is the first time we're seeing that these circles are kind of roads that bend around the conical structure of Inferno. And... Then here we come, speaking of more things that I won't repeat. That's the first time we've seen the poet in a long time. That I won't repeat, that's the poet talking to us. I'm not going to tell you what the Pilgrim and Virgil talked about as they went around the bend of the road because, and this seems to be the point, because we are in the shortest canto we have encountered so far, and one of the shortest in all of comedy, speed is of the essence. This thing ends at line 115. It ends quickly. In fact, I would argue that much of this canto is truncated. Virgil's answer, go back to your science, feels truncated. It feels like it's a quick answer to a much more difficult question. Because I think that Dante the poet is feeling the need to press on. We came to a place where the road descends. Well, first time we actually kind of see that, the descent to the next level. And then we catch the first glimpse of the next level with Plutus standing at the great enemy. And notice the final irony. Then there we came upon Plutus, the great enemy, and Virgil, just a few lines before, had identified Christ and the second coming of Christ as the hostile force or the baleful power. Ah, here's the great enemy. Virgil may have gotten his definitions wrong. The pilgrim and the poet are telling us that that's not the enemy. Here's the enemy, Plutus. And so there is a play right there between Plutus and how Virgil identifies Christ just a few lines earlier in the passage. See? complicated, difficult, fabulous, worth a slow walk. Um, I've kind of really taken this passage apart bit by bit, so I don't think I'm going to read it again. You can look back on it. Uh, you can look it up on my website, markscarbo.com or walkingwithdante.com, which directs to my website. You can find my rough translation of the English, uh, or you can look it up in other translations and read it again. It's a short passage. I think we kind of covered it. So given that, subscribe. Drop a rating. That would be fabulous. And connect with me. On Twitter is the best place under my own name, Mark Scarborough. I'd be glad to connect with you there and talk more, Dante. Oh, until the grand judgment itself. And I assure you the torments won't get bigger or smaller. They'll stay as they are. Just as enjoyable because the comedy is nothing but a series of surprises. One after the other. So the surprises will continue as we descend a level to the fourth circle of hell in the next episode of Walking with Tom.